Morning, everyone. How is everybody? Um, good, thanks. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to this week of, of Gallery 13. And as Dan said, we're talking about a woman named Lydia this morning. And uh, she does have quite a small role in terms of scripture. There's only about six verses that refer to her. But she's always been one of the more fascinating people to me in the New Testament for a variety of different reasons. And so what we're going to do is read the scriptures that, uh, that tell her story. And I want to point out some interesting things about the story. And then I want to spend the rest of our time just exploring some of the implications or the thoughts that I have about her story. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Acts chapter 16, that's where we're going to be. There will also be some scriptures on the side screens, and it's also on your fridge folds as well. But we're going to pick up reading the text in verse 11 of chapter 16. It starts out, it says, We boarded a boat at Troas and, and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrake, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. This is, the we here is Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, and Paul and some of his companions. Then they go on. It says, From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Theratira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. We're going to stop right there, but if you were to continue to read uh, Acts chapter 16, you would find out that what happens next is that Paul and his companions run into a, a bit of trouble, and they actually end up getting arrested and thrown in jail, and then through some miraculous uh, occurrences, they get released from jail, they escape or get released, and then at the very tail end of Acts chapter 16, Lydia appears one more time in verse 40. It says, when Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. So there's a few interesting things that set the context for who Lydia is and why she's important in the story of talking about discipleship in the Bible. The first thing that we want to point out is that uh, she's a single woman, or she appears to be a single woman, I should say. There's a lot about her that we, we just don't know, but her husband is certainly never mentioned. She's a woman. Uh, she might be a slave. She might be free. There's a lot that's bound up in your name in the first century, and uh, there's some question as to whether she is a slave. I happen to be of the opinion that she is simply a free, single businesswoman. This is a relatively rare thing in the first century, but it's not unheard of for a woman to be in business for herself. So uh, it's a bit of a guesswork, but I think it's an educated guess to say, here's Lydia, a woman who ha has a business of her own selling what we're told is purple cloth. And we're going to explore the implications of that in just a moment. So we're also told in, um, in verse... Where is it? In verse 14, that she worshiped God. 
And this is actually an important term as well because we look at this as sort of a vague thing. Well, she worshiped God. We all worshiped God. It's actually a technical term in the first century for a very particular type of person. It's all, another way to put it in, that would be closer to the Greek is to say that she was a God-fearer. Okay, And this is an important term that designates a certain group of people that are not Jewish, but that are seeking out God as the Jews would tell people about. So she's not Jewish, but she has begun to attend synagogue meetings, begun to, to investigate as part of the community who this God is, right? And, uh, and now Paul shows up and he is telling her as she's investigating who God is, he speaks to her, we, we presume about Jesus. We don't have the record of exactly what Paul said to her, but she is on the edges of this community and she is checking out who God is and what they're telling her about God. Now, there's something about what Paul says that triggers this hospitality gene inside Lydia, right? As soon as Paul tells her about, and these other women, about this God and presumably about Jesus, her first reaction is what? Come stay with me. Let me open up my home to you. You're a missionary. You're traveling around. Let me offer you a place to stay. There's some kind of almost direct line from hearing about God to hospitality and generosity. And it goes a little bit further than just the first reference to this. Because we're told that when Paul and his companions get to Philippi to go find the meeting of, in this case, Jewish believers, they have to go outside of the city and they find them meeting by a river. Now, the reason this is important is because Rome is a culture and an empire that has authorized religions. Certain gods and certain religions are okay to be a part of. Certain other religions and certain other gods are kind of dubious to be a part of. And in different times and in different places, the Jews and therefore the Christians have not been in favor in the Roman Empire, particularly because the Jewish God and the Christian God have very profound and important things to say about who is in charge of the world. Namely, that there is a God and he created the world and he is active in it and he is in charge of it. And this does not fly too well in the face of the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire would say, well, actually, the person that is in charge of the world and that runs the world and is active in the world is a man named Caesar who declares himself to be God as well. So the Jewish God and Caesar and the Christian God and Jesus are utterly opposed to each other. And what's at stake is who is running the world? So not part of a state religion, you don't get to meet inside the city. You're not part of a faith system that is acceptable to the Roman Empire. You get no equivalent of tax breaks. You get no facilities to meet at. You have to go meet outside the city walls. It's not a comfortable place to be. That's, Paul, that's where Paul finds these believers. And that's where he finds Lydia. And she says, come and stay at my house. Paul gets thrown into prison. And then notice what happens at the end of Acts chapter 16 when Paul gets out of prison. It says he goes to meet with the believers again. But where are they meeting this time? 
Are they still meeting in a van down by the river? Where are they meeting? In Lydia's home, which is presumably inside the walls of the city. This is risky to Lydia because I assume that not much has changed in terms of Rome's stance towards uh, Yahweh, towards Jehovah, towards God. And yet Lydia says, I'm gonna offer hospitality and safety to this little movement of faith that we would come to know as Christianity. Come into my house. Even though I'm a successful businesswoman, even though I'm operating in the middle of an empire, I'm going to risk this because it matters. So she brings them into the city, into her home. This is a pretty radical move of hospitality. And, and rather than wait to the end of the message, which we've been doing, I'm just going to tell you right now that what Lydia's life tells me about being a disciple of Jesus is that a disciple of Jesus lives a life of radical generosity because she has a lot to lose. And yet there's something about her faith that says my first reaction is to give, is to open up space in my home at risk, at personal risk in order to make this happen. And what I want to explore for the remainder of our time is kind of maybe how that happens. And I think if you want to live a life of radical generosity in light of Lydia's life, I think you have to get two things right. I think Lydia gets two things right. And what I want to explore are what those two things might be. We're told in the scripture that she sells what? Exper expensive purple cloth. Uh, over history, the color purple is associated with a, a few different things. But what's this associated with? Purple. Royalty. And the Roman Empire is no different. Purple is, is a very important color to Rome. So much so that by the second century, now in, in Acts, we're talking about first century stuff. But by the second century, the Roman Empire, the government, the state, the emperor, they have a monopoly on selling this. You don't just pick up one day and decide to sell purple cloth. It's a state-run business. And typically, the sellers of purple cloth had to be connected, so much so that sometimes they even had to be family members of Caesar's household. So that's what's going on in the second century. Is it going on in the, in the first century? We actually don't know. We're not told it's not. We're not told that it is. I don't, see how, I don't have a problem saying that maybe it's already moving that direction. I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm actually uh, married to an economist and uh, I don't know a whole lot about economics, but I know a thing or two about a monopoly. And if you have a monopoly, who does a monopoly favor, the buyer or the seller? The seller. In a monopoly, the seller sets the prices because there's no what? Competition. All this is to say, I think Lydia is a successful businesswoman. I think she sells this, whether she has a state monopoly, whether she's connected to Caesar, I don't know. But I have no problems assuming that this woman 
is very good at what she does. And she is successful enough to own a home that can offer space for this church to meet in. So I think this says some pretty interesting things about uh, one of the dirty words for the church. One of the dirty words that, that we don't talk about often in, on Sundays in church is this word, W-O-R-K, work. Because a lot of us come in here and are like, well, it's the weekend. The last thing I want to come in to church is hear about work because I got to go back to it on Monday. But I think if we want to understand generosity the way Lydia lives it out, I think one of the first things we have to come to terms with is what the Bible says about work. So I want to give you a little glimpse of how, uh, of how work works in terms of your faith and in terms of God. So I want to do this by just showing you how God designed a little bit of our world according to our faith tradition. So it looks like this. In Genesis 1, God is creating the world. He gets to Genesis 1, verse 26, 27. We've seen this before if you've been a part of E3. The text says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all of the animals that scurry along the ground. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work. Whose image are we made in? And what does God do? So he rested from all his and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his of creation. Now just hold there for a second. Whose image are we made in? What does God do? Uh, God also gives us, if you saw it there in verse 26, 27, one of our first job descriptions. He says, fill the earth, govern it, reign over it. Now govern there and reign for our purposes look a little bit more like take care of this thing that I made. But right out of the box, we got to deal with work. But it gets worse. <laughs> this, this is chapter two. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord had not, not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. What's going on here is that God needs people to work. <laughs> the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to do what? Tend it and watch it. So God says, I'm creating you and you're already late for work. <laughs> Next slide. Oh, that's it. Okay, verse, that was verse 15. So the whole point of this is that work is a part of God's creative plan from the beginning. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have had some lousy jobs in my life. 
And I've come to the conclusion at times that work only enters the picture in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve eat the apple and they get kicked out of Eden. And in Genesis 3, God says, hey, guess what? The work that you're gonna do is gonna be hard. In Genesis 3, God says, the earth is going to be difficult to work. But that don't mean that work is the first time you hear, the first time you hear about work is in Genesis 3. God says, in Eden, in the place where everything is working the way I designed it to, in Eden where there is peace and connectedness and this concept of shalom, which is this, this fullness, guess what's there? And a lot of us don't look at work that way, do we? A lot of us look at work as this intense burden that we carry. And we run out the door on Friday evening and we dread the coming of Monday morning. And yet there's something about that that just isn't, let's just say, biblical. That work is spiritual and meaningful. And God made it that way. So a lot of us are familiar with work instead of like cultivating a garden that looks a little bit more like this, right? Sitting at a cube farm. You got your office supplies that may or may not be labeled with your name. I know who you are. <laughs> and sometimes, maybe you've never heard those scriptures in Genesis, but maybe you have before. Maybe there's something in your mind that says, I know that work is supposed to be important, but here's what my work looks like, Eric. My work looks like I have this stack of papers on my desk, and really what my job is to get this stack of papers from this side of my desk to this side of my desk by four o'clock. And there doesn't seem to be much meaning or honor or spiritual profoundness to what that is. How many of you would say, this kind of looks like my work life? Well, you're nodding your head, so I'm gonna say that some of you do. <laughs> the first thing I wanna tell you is that a couple of your pastors know exactly what this looks like, okay? I know what this world looks like. I know Lori knows what this world looks like. I know Dan and Mark, they've been entrepreneurs a lot. They've been out doing stuff, but... I know this existence. I know what it means to be like, what does this have to do with my spiritual life? And yet I'm here eight hours a day. And for me, at least, I dwelt in this tension of like, is this just a big waste of spiritual time? And as soon as I walk out the door, that's when, that's when meaning starts to happen. That's when God starts to happen. And I think that there's something really, really um, upside down about that. Uh, work is designed to be meaningful. It's designed to have this kind of echo of God's work in it. And I think the only way we can kind of get at that is if we stop and look at work in a different way. I was thinking about this this week and I was just, you know, rummaging around the, the internet and I found this video that has to do with what work can mean. And I thought about just transcribing the video 
uh, but, but I stopped because uh, of who it is that's narrating it. it. It's a guy named Paul Harvey. Anybody remember Paul Harvey? If you're like my age, you know, if you're like my age or, or, or you know, around there, like you remember this guy whose his voice was like 50% awkward and 50% totally intriguing, you know? He did these op-ed pieces on talk radio. And I remember one of my earliest remembers was driving around with my dad. And we would always listen to, to I think it was WBAP out of Texas. And WBAP had this, you could get WBAP in like Ohio. I had this enormous broadcast range and they always had these Paul Harvey stories. Uh, I think it was in 2013, Dodge uh, co-opted this for a commercial. So we are not selling Dodge Ram pickup trucks at E3. It just happens to be a commercial that Paul Harvey narrates. So I want you to watch this video and watch what meaning he gives work. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, somebody who'd bale a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. I got to tell you, I, I don't know half the things that he said. I understand them. But I was like, sign me up to be a farmer. I was like, I will buy a Dodge Ram pickup truck and I will splint the leg of a meadowlark if, if a meadowlark. Does that not give work a sort of different light, right? Now, here's the deal. You have to, I hope I don't have to say this, but I will. It's not about being a farmer, right? Like, it's not all of a sudden, okay, well, farmers get the meaning and the rest of us, well, we're, if you're stuck here, good luck with that. It's about finding meaning and looking at your work in a way that says, God intended this all along. Some of us work what I would call closer to the bone. You know, you might be a farmer, you might be a first responder, you might be a nurse. You see the immediate impact in terms of life or death of your work. But if God created work for all of us, then it means that if you sit here, 
or if you work in a classroom, or if you clean, then it all matters because God made work as an echo of his character. Now, some of our generation, we've heard this thing that if you really want to be happy in your work, you have to find your passion. And that the key to being happy in work is working in your passion. If you've, have you ever, anybody ever heard that? Mm-hmm. What if I tell you that that's not really true? I believe that. But I listened to uh, and yet another guy talk. And uh, anybody remember the show Dirty Jobs? Yeah. Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe gave a talk once and I watched it and he said, you know, people talk about passion all the time and they talk about how work is the key to being passionate. He said, but you know, I've seen some of the worst jobs ever created. You know, if you don't know what dirty jobs is, he goes around and just to the, goes around the country and he literally finds like the, the most disgusting jobs that people do. They deal with a lot of body fluids and a lot of dead animals and a lot of things that smell bad and look bad and it's just awful. But you know what Mike Rose said? He said, those are some of the happiest people in terms of work that I've ever met. And he said, don't ever think that the guy that dig, that deals with like pig poop for a living, that he's passionate about pig poop. <laughs> that he was like when he was 13, you know what I really want to be when I grow up? I don't know, but it's got to involve some pig feces. <laughs> he says, those, those, they're not passionate about that. You know what the key to, the, to their happiness was? They knew how their work fit into the world. So the folks that scraped roadkill off the ground, they're not passionate about it, but they know the difference that it makes. It's not really safe to have dead, rotting animals lying all around. That knowing the meaning of your work is actually what makes you happy. Now, if that aligns with your passion, great, so be it. But don't hold up the fact that if I'm here and this isn't my passion, I can't be happy. Because God says, first of all, I created work. Second of all, the key to it is knowing the meaning of it. So if you crunch numbers, if you work in spreadsheets, again, if you're a nurse, again, if you're anything, the key to it is where does my job fit into the world? And this is where having a life of faith is kind of helpful. Because let's be honest, sometimes when you're sitting at this desk, it's really hard to find out where this fits into the world. Again, if you're not, a, if you're not somebody who deals with life or death or crisis things, sometimes you're like, what does this Excel spreadsheet, what does this formula have to do with the world? Well, if you consider yourself a person of faith, there's this trump card and it's called God's mission. Because what it means is that It's not so much about where my work fits into the world, but it's the fact that I am a believer in God and I am sitting in this seat. And I'm the one who has to deal with my crazy coworker who keeps stealing my lunch out of the the refrigerator every day. It means that I'm the one who has to deal with my boss who's sometimes just mean to me and unreasonable, but it's a reality. So the meaning for work for a person of faith is simply this, like, You're there as as an ambassador of God. And some of us get preoccupied with our work in terms of saying like, 
And if we pray, we would say something like this. God, when will you give me another job? God, please give me a promotion. Please give me. For a person of faith, I think the most significant prayer that we can pray every day is just this. God, what do you want to do in my life today? Because that crazy coworker that keeps stealing your food, maybe they don't have enough to eat. That boss that's unreasonable with you, maybe they need to unburden their soul with some really rough stuff they're going through. So the meaning that you find in work as a, as a person who follows God needs to, be laid, needs to be bound up with this idea of like, God, I don't know what you might wanna do with me today. What do you wanna bring into my life today? I'm not gonna pray for another job necessarily. I'm just gonna pray, God, that you would use me. What do you want me to do today? What do you want me to experience today? I think Lydia got work right because she was successful. And that's pretty much true of all of us. The funny thing about work is that if you get work right, if you work hard and have a good attitude, things start to happen and things start to show up in your life. And so if you work hard enough and long enough, something starts to appear in your life. And sometimes it starts out and it's very, very small. It's a tiny little savings account, a tiny little bank account. But if you keep getting the work thing right, guess what happens? It multiplies. Now, this isn't just money, is it? Work has a way of producing prestige, promotions, power, recognition. And the more you do it, the more you get rewarded. But this actually creates a whole other list of problems for a person who's trying to be radically generous. Because as this pile grows, as your bank account gets a little fuller, as your prestige grows a little bit, as you get promotion after promotion, you know what starts to happen? You get what I call a vision problem. Because when that starts to grow, it becomes real fun to look at it. It becomes real fun to focus on it. It becomes second nature to look at it constantly. To say, how big is the 401k? When's the next promotion coming? How much recognition do I have? And if you look at it long enough, you get into the habit of doing it. And if you cultivate that habit long enough, you'll find that then no matter where you go in your life, to church, to family vacations, to conversations with friends, there's always an eye that's looking back at that pile. Because you kind of want to monitor how you're doing or you want to keep it safe. In order to get radical generosity right, you have to deal with this vision problem. And Jesus has, I believe, profound things to say about the way the world is and about our vision problem. For those of you who know me, uh, you might know that I've been spending a lot of time in Matthew f- chapters five through seven. It's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
And Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And I just want to read a brief, a brief excerpt from this message that he speaks to people. In chapter six, he starts this way. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. And he goes on. Your eye is a lamp that provides the light for your whole body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. How many people ever read that and say, what does the eye have to do with this? Like we're talking about treasures. I get that. We're talking about you can't serve one or the other. I get that. But then like, did Jesus kind of have like a, like did you just get off on a rabbit trail? And all of a sudden he's like, oh, wait, wait, the eye. Anybody ever confused by that? Okay, well, you guys can teach me about that later. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. The eye has a way of affecting our heart. And I think Jesus is saying, if all you ever do is store up your treasures here on earth, and you give your eye to that constantly, that has a way of affecting our heart. And the eye, we just view it as this neutral thing. But the more you look at something, the more it becomes a part of you. And in fact, hidden in the Greek, there are, there are a couple ways to subtly understand. When Jesus says, your eye is good, the Greek word for good there can also be understood as a word for generosity. And when Jesus says, oh, your eye can be bad, that Greek word could also be understood as a word for stingy. So Jesus is saying, if you have treasures and all you ever do is take care of the treasures on earth and you give your eye to that all the time, you will lose the ability to be generous and you will become a stingy, stingy person. So, so what does he say instead, right? He says, he goes off on this thing. He said, well, here's what you need to do. You need to look at the flowers and the birds, right? The birds do not have any legs. In fact, that is the case. <laughs> Technically, they're made out of plastic too and they don't have feathers, but that's beside the point. Jesus says, you really wanna know the way the world works? Instead of focusing on this, because here's the deal. If you focus so much on this, knowing that it comes from work, it becomes very easy to say, well, you know where that pile came from? I did that. Because I got work right. And so you look at the 401k and you look at the prestige and you look at the honor and you go, what? Ain't I great? And Jesus says, I think that's perfectly natural. But he says, no. Look at the birds. The birds, they don't store up things. They live in this moment to moment Sometimes it's fragile, but they live in this moment-to-moment -moment awareness 
of there will be enough. He says, look at the flowers. They're beautiful. Did the flowers like go out and make sure they played golf with their boss like three times a month so that they could look beautiful? Did they make sure that they angled for that promotion so they could be more pretty than the other flowers? No, the flowers are beautiful because there's a God that made them that way. And what Jesus ultimately says about this is that this is fine. This comes from hard work. But there's still a God that gave it to you. That there is still gifts and provision and you didn't do anything to really ultimately get it. You got it because there's a God that clothes the flowers and the birds. And isn't that cool? He concludes a section of the, the message by saying in verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and God will give you everything you need. I love this translation. Some of you may have grown up, if you grew up in church, with the translation that says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. And let's face it, well, we have a tendency to make that all churchy. We hear that word righteousness and we go, okay, well, I know what that means. It means don't drink this, don't go here, don't say that, don't watch this movie. For a first century Jew, you know what it meant to live righteously? It meant to live generously. An act of righteousness in the first century was sharing your coat with someone. Because they knew that there was a God who gave it all. And so an act of righteousness simply meant to be like God and God is a giver. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and live righteously, which just means live generously. Why? Because you look at this God who does this already. And you go, I guess this is what it means to be like God to give. And I think what Lydia might have heard when Paul talked was I think maybe she heard about this God who gave this gift of this man named Jesus who didn't hold anything back. And she said, well, I guess I shouldn't hold anything back either. I have done the work thing right. So maybe I should just not, I'll put everything on the table. So here's a space to meet in, even though it might jeopardize my business. Because who she worked for, if she has a monopoly, she works for Caesar. And then I think maybe she heard a little bit more about Jesus who gave all that he had and didn't hold anything back and said, there's evil that needs to be dealt with on this earth. There's sins that need to be forgiven. People need to see that love means going all the way to death. And I think Lydia said, well, I guess I shouldn't hold anything back. One of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, one of the favorite portraits of God as a giver is in Isaiah 55. And as I close, I wanna just 
read a few verses from it and want to ask you a couple questions. So Isaiah 55, this is God speaking, okay? This is God's voice through the prophet. And he says this, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, Come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? And I think ultimately what he's saying, why do you run so hard for things that are just going to fade? Whether it's the bank account or the promotion or the power, Jesus says all of those things are going to fade through rust and through moths, and God's just saying, why do you run so hard on this stuff that doesn't fill you up? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find what? Life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. Let me be crystal clear here. If you get work right, this will come. And this is a good thing. This is not about scrapping all of this and throwing it away because the scriptures say that Lydia sold expensive cloth and did she have a home to host a small group, a church in? Yes, she did. Paul never said, Lydia, sell your home. There's lots of wealthy people in the New Testament. This is about what do you do with the treasures? Do you look at them all the time? Or do you say, I want to live a simple and free life. So instead of focusing on this, I want to focus on this and the one who gave this. I believe there's probably, you know, broadly speaking, two groups of people in this room. So the first group of people in this room might be people who would say, you know what, I'm, I'm down with this Jesus thing. I've followed him for a while. I know my Bible. I consider myself a child of God. I consider myself a Christ follower. The question is, how are you doing with generosity? Are you radically generous? If you have gotten work right, and if you have a pile of stuff, how are you doing with it? Do you have an eye on it all the time? Or are you living free with it? Now, let me be clear here. Again, we just had a legacy campaign or a fundraising campaign, whatever label you want to put on it. We've asked you for money. This is not about money. A treasure can also include your time, your talent. Are you generous with those things? Generous with your time means how, I guess, interruptible is your life? Maybe you're in the job and maybe that annoying colleague comes to you and he's like, man, I gotta talk to you. I'm going through some hard times. Are you generous with your time with another human being? Are you generous with your time with your church? This place does not operate on the eight to 10 staff that work here. This place operates on volunteers. If there are no volunteers, there's no coffee. Serious. <laughs> there's no volunteers. There's nobody to greet you. If there's no volunteers, there's no one to take care of your children. 
How generous are you with your time? Or does your time stay with you? It's mine. How generous are you with your talents? You know, we have demonstrate coming up. It's come up before. Some of you are sitting out there and you know your spiritual gifts and you've never done anything with them. Why? I don't know. Sometimes we just get distracted. That's cool. But living a life of radical generosity says that there is a God who has given abundantly to me and that there's no cause for me to like shut off the conduit of generosity and go, this is where it stops. This is what my life's about. So how are you with generosity? The second group of people is maybe you're like Lydia was in Acts 16. And maybe you're like, you know what? I'm circling around this God right now. I'm, I'm, I'm checking him out. The question for you is what, have you ever considered embracing a God who says to you, why do you spend money on food that doesn't satisfy? Have you ever considered running into the embrace of a God that says, it's all free. Life is free. And I have my arms wide open to embrace anyone who says, I'm tired of running after this. Let me just receive a gift of life from the God who gave it all. Maybe that's something you need to wrestle with. Maybe it's time actually for some of you that you stop wrestling and you finally say, I'll take the gift. The flowers look pretty good. So maybe he can do a pretty good job with me. Let's pray.